Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Trend Micro. At CDW, we get that patch-together security can leave gaps in protection. I patch things together all the time, like this broken desk chair. Some duct tape, good as new. Orchestrated by CDW, Trend Micro Cloud One provides unified protection and better visibility across cloud services. It's all-in-one cloud security that can hold its own. Okay. Want to buy some gently used office furniture? No, thanks. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash trendmicro. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey everybody, very brief and important intro. Last week, I believe, at the beginning of the program, you mentioned that we resolved some issues uh, with with iPhones, uh, some updating errors and subscription errors for the podcast, and I think that we resolved some of them, and there might still be a few out there according to a little bit of feedback that I've gotten back from people. This is a very important issue for me um, because a lot of people are are not getting updates with the podcast, so people think that it stopped or whatever else. So if you guys can do me a favor, if you have an iPhone and you are seeing any, any of these kinds of problems with... Um, a lot of people see a date of like 2000 on the podcast or, or they aren't receiving new episodes and got to go in and manually uh, um, update and get the new episodes rather than it just automatically uh, subscribing like a lot of their podcasts. We're trying to figure out what exactly is going on uh, with that. And so if if you can take a screenshot and go to the here we are podcast dot com website with any 
um, it, with any problems like that and, and write what version of phone you're using, what app, what software, uh, that sort of information would be incredibly helpful. Um, also, if, if you're listening and you're like, I know exactly what that problem is, please write me at the Here We Are podcast.com website and click on Ask a Scientist and write so we can resolve that. I have um, uh, more on this soon, but I have, I have kind of a bit of a marketing campaign that I have coming up for this podcast we're going to get a bunch of new new listeners so i want to make sure everything is running smoothly other than that this is a fantastic episode this is a episode that is uh i've been looking forward to since the very beginning of starting this podcast and i'm i'm glad that david and cindy were uh able to find some time for me on this trip so enjoy guys are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i'm at ut austin and i'm talking with uh we have we have two guests today uh, people always like when we have two guests. Today I'm talking with Cindy Meston, who is a clinical psychologist and director of the Sexual Psychophysiology Lab here at UTA. And I'm talking with uh, David Buss, who I've mentioned, uh, I think, several times on the podcast before, who's who's um, one of the leaders in the field of evolutionary psychology. He, uh, I've known him for a few years. He's been, I've been dragging him out to my comedy shows for, for a few years. And I read all his books, Evolution of Desire, The Dangerous Passion, uh, The Murderer Next Door. Uh, he, he wrote the, uh, the first textbook on evolutionary psychology, The New Science of the Mind. And um, I think I have all that right. Anyway, and, and today we're going to be talking about the book that they, Cindy and David co-authored together called Why Women Have Sex. Thank you guys for joining me. Yeah, thanks for inviting yeah, us. Great talking to you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, good to see you again and nice to meet you, Cindy. Um, so, so how did, this was the most recent book for you, David, right? Uh, uh, yes. And uh, so how did you guys decide to collaborate? You're just across the hall from Yeah, one yeah, exactly. Well, we've both been here at the University of Texas for a lot of years. I've been here 18 years, David, about 20. And so there's lots of opportunities to talk about sex research. And, and one day we just started talking about how no one's ever asked the really simple question of why do people have sex? You know, there's been so much research on the type of sex people have and the frequencies that they're having and what position they're doing what in and, you know, how many times and with who and what. Position. Right. Yeah. But uh, nobody has asked, well, why do people have sex? And probably because they think, well, duh, you know, because it feels good or yeah. you want to maybe reproduce. Um, but anyways, so we, st- we both thought, you know, it's kind of a really interesting topic and clearly no one's asked the question and we knew that it was a lot more complicated than that. So we set about to try to find out what, what were the reasons or what are the reasons why humans have sex. So, so I have to, I have to jump in here and uh, just say first, first of all, it was Cindy's idea to, <laughs> to do this. 
But in our first session, actually, we were, uh, I think, you know, having a glass of wine, which loosens us up a little bit. And so we started brainstorming on the reasons. And so I got out a pad of paper and I would mention one reason. And then Cindy would like reel off 12 and then I'd come up with one more and she'd reel off another 12. And it just made me realize that, that female sexual psychology is a lot more complicated yeah, than I yeah, thought. That, that's the men's yeah, right. brain. Yeah, it. like Dave's like, because it feels good. And I'm like, oh, because that competition, revenge, getting them back. It was a financial reason, economic gain. Yeah. And Dave is, oh, but it's exciting and it's nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. He wasn't really doing that. Yeah, what, what's the, I'm forgetting what's the subtitle of the book again is uh is, is fun it's right right up there grab it and read it from like and yeah what is the subtitle of our book david from adventure <laughs> to revenge and everything in between yeah. understanding sexual motivation yeah. right we ended up we ended up with 237 reasons why people have sex so we did some studies on them uh, we we did surveys of uh, over a thousand. I think we had fifteen hundred women in one of our mm-hmm. studies, and uh, so and it was just really an eye opener. It was fascinating. Cause it, so just to mention a couple of the reasons that you maybe might not have thought of, I wouldn't have thought of them anyway. Uh, one was uh, to get closer to God. So I don't, I don't know whether this person was on psychedelics or not when they, when they said that, but but hey, whatever whatever works. Yeah. Uh, we we found some. I mean, some of the usual suspects. So you know, because I was horny, because I was attracted to the person, because the opportunity presented itself. But we also found some things that were kind of a low base rate or more infrequent. So things like. Uh, because I wanted to feel used or degraded. That one kind of surprised me. Mm. It wasn't a frequent one, but but kind of interesting. Mm. And and what were some of the more yeah, well, other the, ones, Cindy? Well, the one um, to intentionally give someone a sexually transmitted infection. That was yeah. a low base rate, but, but nevertheless, right, some people, high impact. High impact. Yeah. You'll yeah. sometimes see a newspaper story about that where yeah. like someone had been cheated on or something like that. Yeah. And they want to get them back by. Yeah. Well, I remember one uh, woman writing in because we we did a series of studies. The first study, we just gathered responses from several thousand men and women to list all the reasons why they had sex. And then we compiled them into the 237 reasons. And then we administered all of those to see how common people endorse them. So really, um, if there were gender differences and which were the frequently endorsed ones, which were infrequently. And then after that, we got people to write in and tell their stories about why they had sex for each of those reasons. And so I remember this one woman um, telling her story of having endorsed having sex to intentionally give someone a sexually transmitted infection. And her story was that she had been given herpes when she was a young woman, which we know now, I mean, it's serious, but it's not the end of the world. It's a virus that you can get under control for the most part. Um, And she just felt like her whole mating life was over, that she would never find a partner. She'd never be able to marry anyone. She'd be alone the rest of her life, and it terrified her. And so her plan was to have sex whenever she had a herpes outbreak to give it to as many men that she liked as possible because then they would get it and somehow in her mind they would all be in it together and then you know if they have herpes and she has herpes then, then they're, in this they're in the herpes club <laughs> and they you know they, wow. they wouldn't leave her because she had herpes I mean it's this really bizarre psychology but 
It's so different. everyone, please, please think twice before <laughs> before that one night stand yeah, at, at yeah. the bar. And yeah, but it wasn't like you'd normally think, oh, well, that's a real revenge act, you know. But in her case, it was more out of fear of being alone, a desperation. That, that's interesting. Yeah. So, but, yeah, the yeah, so, so the, the stories, the, uh, oh, these are, were people who reported on their actual sexual experiences in some detail. And we talk about them uh, in the book. We, and it really kind of brings some of the more scientific points to life in a way yeah. that when, when you hear, well, you know, this is what actually happened. We were in the bedroom. And uh, so one of the ones that uh, Cindy, Cindy talks about often is this woman said, you should describe it. It's the woman who uh, made lists in her head while her husband was having sex with her. Oh, yeah, You yeah. should tell That's, that one. Well, <laughs> I, I, it's a long quote, so I'm not going to be able to remember it. But one of the topics we talk about is duty sex. That's what we called it. And it's the notion of having sex because you feel obligated to. So clearly from a clinical standpoint, this usually arises when you have a, a couple that have a mismatch in sex drive. So the one with a lower sex drive feels obligated to have sex with the other one. Otherwise, as one woman wrote, um, my mother taught me to please my man or someone else will. So the notion that you're going to satiate them sexually so that they don't stray and have sex elsewhere. And they but, don't have parades for these heroes? <laughs> these martyrs. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there would be too many parades to come. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, so one aspect of uh, having these women write in is is that we you usually think of duty sex as something kind of negative that I mean, you, it's not always women having duty sex, but more often than not, it's the the woman that has the lower sex drive, sadly. And uh, so it's saying that they have duty sex and that they felt kind of used and, uh, you know, resentful that they had to have sex when they didn't want to. But we had all these women writing in like, oh, it's no big deal. You know, one woman said it's like, I don't know, I just find that it's easier to uh, spend five minutes having sex with him than listening to him whine and complain for five hours about not getting it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then this other woman that David was re- referring to said that uh, she, you know, basically after a while, when you've been married a long time, sex just isn't that exciting anymore. It's very predictable. And so she uh, just lies there while they have sex and makes lists in her head and grunt wa- grunts once in a while to let him know <laughs> that she's awake. And then when it's <laughs> over, tells him how great it was. And it, it seems <laughs> to be working they're happily married so you know this is someone who really didn't view the sexual duty as something necessarily demeaning or aversive as but rather a way to just kind of maintain the relationship yeah, that's uh, that's what I really like about the book is uh, because I imagine you didn't have too many people writing in saying that, well, I'm just a vehicle for my genes trying to <laughs> arbitrarily help them along on their quest for immortality. Yeah, um, it, but but it's it, be, because because what's nice and uh, I mean, I, I read a lot of, uh, you know, mostly popular science books that, you know, it, it's just as someone who never went to college, it's a, a bit easier for me to understand when <laughs> it's, you, you know, written for for the lay person but but um uh, i feel like a, a lot of times I'll, although you will see some you know anecdotal stories and and uh, some authors will try to make it a little more personal than others i think 
I think for science, for people can sometimes be a little sterile and, and disconnected. Yeah, and removed from the everyday experience. Yeah, so, so it's yeah. it's so nice that um, when when the listeners get this book, there's there's these little essays with you know this is a real person, their real yeah. conscious experience. Yeah. Of, of why they did it. And then after that, it's broken down into some of these underlying explanations uh, mechanisms. of why they may be doing right. that. Right. And one, one, one other one that I thought of, one thing that really interested me about this, these studies that I did with Cindy Messon is, uh, had to do with the, the self-esteem issues that surround mm-hmm. sex because there's so much uh, that, you know, self-esteem, you know, can skyrocket with great sex, it can plummet with bad sex. Uh, but also, like, for example, when people get get dumped, they get rejected in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, one woman said that she had sex. She said the, the, the best way to get over one man is to get under another, you know. And <laughs> yeah. so and so you think some people use use sex, you know, if they're feeling bad, they're feeling depressed. And it's it's a it's a can be a mood booster if it if it's done properly. Yeah, and, th- there's also I also feel like it's sometimes like a reappraisal too, and when, when you've been in a relationship or maybe a marriage or whatever for a very long amount of time. Like I remember my last relationship was like four years or something like that, and I was in like a five year before that, and then I was single for like a year, and I had also broken both of my feet in this <laughs> time hiking, which I mentioned briefly on stage the other night, and um, and and so there was this, you know, uh, I was using a cane and everything, where I was like. <laughs> Well, where am I at right now? No, 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 no. What's my mate value? Right, right. Yeah, what is my mate value? That's right. That's right. But your, your point is exactly right. So when you've been in a relationship for a long time then and you're out of the mating market, you don't know what your mate value is. Mm-hmm. And so so sometimes sex launching into sex uh, serves an assessment function. You know, you might have been an eight when you went into that relationship four years earlier. And maybe in, if in your case, if your comic acts are taking off, you're appearing on national television, maybe you're a nine or a ten now. Yeah. Or, or maybe if you've been tanking, maybe you're a two or a three. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that is, as a guy, that definitely is something that uh, fluctuates wildly as a, as a male comedian right right definitely the the response that how how many women talk to me after a a sold out show that kills uh, as opposed to looking the same doing the exact same material to an audience of 15 people that aren't interested it's a huge effect and um you know, and I, and I think part of it, and this is something we talk about in our book, is is the status function. Uh, and one of the things about uh, about male sexuality is, and women's attraction, sexual attraction to men, is that it is so dependent on context. So, so I know one one uh, academic friend of mine, a female, she said she uh, she went to this conference that a guy had organized. She found herself very sexually attracted to the organizer. And then she saw him six months later, and he was just a normal participant, not the organizer. And she goes, what was I thinking? I, I, he doesn't want to find him attractive at all. You know, where, whereas I think women are less variable. So guys can fluctuate wildly depending on, on their status, uh, their personality, their sense of humor. All these contextual issues influence women's sexual attraction to men. And what car they're driving? What car are they driving? <laughs> yeah, I remember. So I was in, uh, uh, you know, I know you you spend a lot of time in L.A. Yeah. I gave a talk in L.A. a few months ago, and the guy, my host, picked me up in a Lamborghini. And he, he pulled up in the Lamborghini, and, like, the, uh, I don't know, the, all, all the all the workers in the airport 
like flocked out. They wanted selfies taken in front of the Lamborghinis, yeah. you know, undoubtedly, I'm sure for purely altruistic reasons. But Meanwhile, there's people in L.A. that are driving around, maybe not a Lamborghini, but a high end vehicle like that, that are like living in a studio apartment. Yeah. The outward appearance. Yeah, (laughs) it's funny because even even, you know, being in relationships where I'm with the same person who, you know, we're, you know, having sex on a frequent basis or whatever. And and you'd think everything would be kind of constant. You know, they would go and sometimes see me, you know, do a late night set or something like that. And all of a sudden being (laughs) much hornier and and turned on or whatever. Right. Right. Well, we, we, we found that, uh, uh, Cindy Mess and I found that in our studies, uh, as well, that things like, uh, even within a marriage, if her husband got a pay raise (laughs) or a big promotion, all of a sudden she'd be more in the mood. You know, so it was really interesting. Well, I think, but there's a lot of things going on. There's context, but also in something like that, like when you're talking about doing a really good show and you're you're just rocking and everything's going great, you're probably your testosterone's pumped up too, right? Oh, yeah, so probably. your sex drive's pumped up. You're, you're more confident. Yeah, you're more confident. Right. You're winning, and so maybe that plays right. A role right. As well. I, I have to tell an anecdote uh, about that. So, uh, and this is not in the context of it's in the context of prostitution. But in New York City, apparently the prostitutes have a saying. They say when when the stocks go up, the cocks go up. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, there is that. That is, um, you know, there's the status, and, and then that is closely aligned with the kind of you know you have a chapter on um, I guess like the barter and trade yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. aspect yeah. of it, where um, you know you'll also be in relationship where. Where yeah, they might uh, a female might be impressed when you get a raise or something like that. But but I've also had girlfriends that you know I I do some painting around the house or something like that, and, and often am am rewarded. <laughs> we were just talking yeah. about that. Yeah, we were just talking about that. On the way to our class. On the way to our sex class. How useful he is at household chores. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about that. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, in in my relationships, I I'm, I'm, I tend to be fairly inept at these sort oh, of yeah. m- male typical things and mechanical things. I was telling Cindy, you know, if I if I can change a light bulb or something, I feel very like I've made a big accomplishment. Uh, but the women that I've been with have said, uh, and I explained that to them early on. I'm not good at these male sorts of things. I can't, I can't take the car apart and fix the carburetor or whatever. They, but they say, well, as long as you make enough money to pay someone to do that, I'm <laughs> yeah, fine with that. Yeah, yeah. So, but but there is this other issue of you know maybe guys who are very handy around the house, it perhaps is a turn on. Yeah. I mean, ancestrally, we need you to be able to fix the toaster. Right, exactly. So I, I need to go back to the drawing board and hone my skills on that. Well, it is kind of interesting how uh, in our modern world mm. you can kind of get away with being more specialized and how, how you know, I, I feel like our hunter-gatherers needed to have, you know, as as many, you know, positive attributes and personality traits. But now nowadays you... You don't have to be a funny person. You can go and take your lady to a comedy show to see someone else make them them laugh. Or, or you, you know, I I I don't know the first thing about playing music, but I can take a lady yeah. to go and see you know jazz at the Elephant Room or something like that. And it, and I I think that it's it's certainly not the same. I don't right, think that there's right, the same right, appeal, right. of course. Right. But I I do think that you're still able to. I think it it can 
possibly take a little pressure off of us. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I uh, as you were talking, I'm actually I used to do some construction, so I know a little bit about uh, fixing up stuff around the house. But because I used to work construction, I I hate having to revisit oh, a lot yeah, of those, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of those memories. So, like my last serious relationship, she wanted so much done to our, to, to our place, and it was it definitely made it easier when I got those rewards along the way. I, I put up less of a fight. Um, so, uh, so I wanted to go through a couple things because because we've talked about, um, it, you know, one of the things when I first started learning about this uh this stuff that struck me was was the idea of uh, and you hear a lot of people's first answer like well it feels good or whatever but just just the idea of of um why does it feel good in the first place i, I think we've touched on this a right. couple times right. on the show and and the idea of 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 like you know the, the female orgasm aren't, aren't there studies where where uh, women that are more orgasmic don't don't necessarily have any more children than the rest of the population. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, the yeah the link between reproduction um, and uh, orgasm uh, is zero. Yeah, yeah. And in the modern yeah. modern population, none of those things would matter anyway. Right. I mean, all bets are off, and we live in a weird modern world where we have birth control technology, and so that severs any whatever any prior relationship was. Between things like orgasm and reproduction, they no longer exist. Yeah, well, I mean, condoms don't quite feel as good. So, I, I, not, not that right. I, I mean, I'm supposed to be promoting condoms and everything, but there <laughs> definitely is like, you know, if there's alcohol involved and and the judgment is impaired, sometimes knowing that it feels that much better, it, it, it is it is a little hard fighting those evolutionary. Uh, well, well, what it pressure. is is so, so the way I would put it or, or, or reframe the question that I think you're you're asking. So in in our study, so people said, "Why did you have sex?" Because it felt good, or because it, I knew it would feel good. But what we have to understand is is the underlying um, logic of that. So to draw an analogy, if if I asked you, "Well, why did you eat that delicious steak or hamburger?" Or if you're vegetarian, that you know. Uh, you know, hummushed, hummus with a, a, a side of mashed yeast, uh, you know, why did you eat that? And they said, because it, it feels good or because I was hungry. But that doesn't really explain the underlying logic of why we evolved the right. specific taste preferences that we did and why those particular tastes taste good to us. Uh, and, the same, and the same with sex. Why does it feel good to us? And that's part of what our book unpacks, you know, is the underlying evolved psychology of that. Hmm. So, uh, so can we talk a little bit about? Uh, I think the the first chapter um, along these same, same lines. What what women are attracted to in the first place? Because we've been touching on this a little bit with mm-hmm. status and everything else. Mm-hmm. But I, but maybe um, may, maybe going just a little bit deeper into the evolutionary side of of why women might be attracted to status or or what physical attributes women might be finding attractive and and why? Sure. We can do it. well. So, so one thing, actually, since you're a comedian, I wanted to uh, I wanted to share one anecdote in our uh, from our book where uh, a sense of humor does come up, and you have to make yes. a, 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 you have to make a distinction. So, men and women define humor differently. So, men define humor. A woman with a good sense of humor is a woman that laughs at his jokes. <laughs> right. uh, so, there's humor production and humor appreciation. 
Uh, but uh, but women often do say uh, a sense of humor is really important. But there is this comedian, Jim McFarland, who says that, you know, women claim that sense of humor is important. <laughs> but really, they're usually talking about the humor of guys like Brad Pitt, Russell Crowe <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, and Tom Cruise. Apparently, those guys are hilarious. Yeah, so, yeah. so but uh, but but with attraction. So so some of it status, for example, women are attracted. to So Henry Kissinger had this uh a well-known quote that everyone knows is the power is an aphrodisiac. Uh, he also said uh, m- one of my better quotes of him. He says, now when I, when I bore people at parties, they think it's their fault. Uh, <laughs> I but, love that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but status in men has always been associated with resources and reproductively relevant resources. So a guy who has status, and this goes back into deep evolutionary time, uh, would have not only had the resources, would have had a strong coalition that supported them, would have had the social allies providing better health care for children. So status has always been linked with resource acquisition in, in our culture and in every other group. And so status offers this, this bounty of benefits, and women are attracted to it. Mm. Uh, and that's probably also why uh, things like cars do sometimes matter in sexual attraction. You have an expensive car that is a signal that you have uh, status and abundant resources so that you can afford to waste some of them right. on stuff that really doesn't get you from point A to point B any better than a Toyota Corolla. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing just the number of variables that can go into and and, and you know um, evolutionary reasons and and sociological reasons whatever and you know j- just the infinite amount of of reasons behind it because you might say okay why why might a woman be attracted to say me doing comedy on stage well women like a sense of humor well it's also that you know maybe i'm delivering these jokes with confidence mm-hmm. you know they yeah. yes they're uh it, it might be that um i'm uh, you know advertising my intelligence in yeah. in some way I, I might have a little gel in my hair accenting my uh, healthy <laughs> hairline you know yeah. okay. well, i'll add to those i think i think all those all those are in fact good because it does take a sense of confidence to get up in a room full of people and make them laugh it's hard to do as as you know hard to do hard to do well uh, also requires verbal facility also requires mind reading ability you have to put yourself in the perspective of someone else and know what's gonna make them laugh mm. and that's an unusual cognitive ability but there's one more that i think is really interesting about being a comedian being up there on stage and that is that status is often determined by the person to whom the most people are paying the most attention mm. and so you get a large group of room in the room Everyone is paying attention to you. That attention structure, which is what it's called, is a strong cue to status in and of itself. Ah, uh, yeah, so, that's interesting. Yeah. You know that <clears throat> as you were saying that, yeah. it, it it reminded me of this time. I mean, stuff like this just never happens to me, but this happened to be um, after after a show. So it wasn't in the showroom um, or anything. We were at a bar afterwards with some comics, and um, and I was. And I was telling the story with this, and I, and I was kind of like holding court for the, these yeah. Yeah, yeah. F- five to ten <laughs> minutes or whatever while I was telling the story, and everyone was laughing and interested and right. everything else. And there, there were some girls and guys there or whatever. And this woman just came up out of nowhere, 
broke into it and then was like, hey, do you have a girlfriend? I was like, whoa, that <laughs> never <laughs> happens. So so that's an interesting point about attention. Right. I mean, there's all these things that it says about you, as you've been mentioning and what David's been mentioning. But there's also the very basic thing that if you make someone laugh, you make them feel good. And we like people that make us feel good. Mm. You know, you want someone who's, you know, makes you... I don't know, giggle and laugh and kind of get out of your headspace or whatever. Yeah, it just feel feels good to laugh. So Yeah, there's also I think there's like a vulnerability to it where where just just like buying a, an expensive car is making you vulnerable if you're the, the you know wasting a bunch of money on a car, but you can handle this big hit. I think kind of getting on stage in front of people and being vulnerable to hecklers or whatever might might do the same thing. But as far as attention, is that do you think that has anything to do with kind of um, it's almost like a reference or like a vetting process where you'll you'll see the study of taking a guy by himself, a picture of a guy oh, yeah. by himself, and then put him in with yeah five different women. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's almost like a reference. Like it's hard to uh, uh, analyze everything about yeah. a certain person. Yeah. Um, so. One thing that I'm very interested in, and I know, David, and you've, you've talked about in, in your other books, you wrote a whole book on, on jealousy. Um, um, but uh, uh, could you talk a little bit about, about um, mate guarding and, and the idea of, of trading up? Um, if you guys could touch on that. Uh. Uh, sure, yeah. So, well, uh, sex is, uh, and why people have sex, uh, mate guarding is, is in fact one of them. And, and I mean, it's a large and complicated topic. So, so one has to do with something that Cindy mentioned earlier, that uh, satisfying your partner at home so he won't be tempted to, you know, go mm-hmm. elsewhere to get satisfied. And so actually sex in and of itself is a form of mate guarding. Um, there's another level which has to do with something called sperm competition, which sounds very weird, but uh, male sperm are viable within the female reproductive tract for uh, up to about five days. Uh, And so uh, what that means is if a woman has sex with two different guys, then it could be that uh, the main guy, her regular boyfriend or husband, is getting is getting genetically cuckolded. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, mama's baby, papa's maybe. You know, men can never be sure. Uh, and so we've talked a lot about this with uh, Todd Shackleford. Okay, here, yeah, okay. I was going to mention actually. that he's he's yeah. done he's done most of the work on on this, and uh, and he's found that um, based in part on Baker and Bellis's uh, earlier work, but he's done some very cool work where he finds that if there's a um, uh, a large an opportunity uh, a time gap for the woman to have had sex with someone else then males will be especially keen on having sex with her uh you know he, hypothesis due to that sperm competition so that's so that's that's another whole whole level um uh but but there's there's one other aspect that I'll just mention having to do with the the mate guarding and the jealousy so so jealousy sometimes does ignite sexual passion and I think part of the reason for this is that uh, it has to do with mate value. People are not attracted to people that no one else is attracted to. And so if, if other people are attracted to your partner, then you find yourself more attracted to that partner. And so, uh, and, and, you know, so, so uh, yeah, so sexual jealousy mm-hmm. can, can ignite sexual passion. 
That's interesting. I one of my exes would actually get. I'm I'm just not a very jealous person at all. Um, and one of my exes would actually get upset with me for not yeah. being like more jealous than <laughs> right, I was. Right. Like that's, it was an indication that yeah. I didn't care. Or exactly. Well, it, it, and it is. Women interpret that as a sign that you're not in love with them or that you're not sufficiently committed to them. If you say, oh, oh yeah, sure, have sex with this guy. I don't care. You know, uh, yeah, sign of uh, a low commitment, low <laughs> yeah. investment, low love. And and it may not be, um, you know. In your case, there are individual differences just in that in that base, baseline level of jealousy. Mm-hmm. But but women often do interpret absence of jealousy as an absence of love. Hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes um, along those same lines in, in relationships. Um, I mean, I often like to think it's it's all all my girlfriend doing it, and that I have uh, I I of course am perfect and never screwing up in this way. But I I do feel like along those same lines, sometimes you like kind of push each other's buttons a, a little bit just to kind of get a reaction. Oh well, well that's yeah. because yeah. there's a, an element of anxiety that increases sexual arousal so if you and it'll transfer over so you if you pick a fight and you're starting to fight and then you make up again you're already in a high level of arousal and then if you can switch it over into sexual arousal yeah. and then all of a sudden you know it's really intense it's really passionate oh that's you're interesting sorting it out and and that all that residual excitement from the anger is fed into the sexual anxiety yeah, yeah, I like the, um, the, the, I think the quote is, and, I, and I'm not as good as uh, scientists at, um, citing people. I can never remember names, but I, I really like the quote, the opposite of love isn't hate. Right. The opposite of, of love is indifference. Right, and exactly. it, it's funny how kind of neurologically those, how, yeah. how close those two are linked. Of course, yeah. I mean, everyone knows about makeup sex. And, right, exactly. Or even, um, well, I did a study in my lab uh, a number of years ago now where we looked at interpersonal attraction between um, men and women who didn't know each other, but they were heterosexual, you know, uh, individuals. And they and we looked at the degree to which their attractiveness towards each other changed from riding a roller coaster. Um, and so we either measured their ratings of attraction before they got on the roller coaster or after they got off the roller coaster. And that total unrelated anxiety, that fear arousal from riding a roller coaster transferred over and they rated these people as being more attractive. And so it, it's like somehow when you're, you're in this one context, which is I'm afraid because I'm riding a roller coaster, and then you're in another context, which could be interpreted as sexual. And in some cases, you kind of misinterpret the fact that you have this arousal from riding the roller coaster and you misinterpret it as, wow, I must be attracted to them. My heart's beating like crazy. And, oh, and, and then you are more attracted to them. There was a really famous experiment that l- led to this. It was done by Dutton and Aaron in 1974, I think, or 79 at, um, in Vancouver. And, and what they did is they had uh, research assistants, male and female research assistants, approach men after they walked across the Capilano Suspension Bridge, which is this really freaky, narrow bridge that has like a 250-foot drop to rapids below, and, you know, it's really scary. And uh, then they were approached by male and female research assistants and asked to write a story, basically, and later they analyzed it for sexual content. And um, as a control, they also 
ha- approach men who are walking across this very stable, non-fear arousing bridge. And what they found is that there was so much more sexual content in the stories written by the men who were approached by females and who had walked across this scary bridge than, than in, in the other conditions. So it really was like they, they called it excitation transfer. Mm. This residual arousal gets misinterpreted as sexual arousal and you think, oh, wow, I'm really attracted to you because I'm experiencing all this nervous system arousal that usually happens when I'm sexually attracted, <laughs> you know, not just because I paid 50 bucks to have the heck scared out of me, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's, that is, uh, that's really, really interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so would the implication be, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to turn a woman on, take her to scary bridges, take her to horror movies, yeah, uh, roller coaster rides, uh, get a very fast motorcycle and put her yeah, on yeah. the back and <laughs> speed at 80 miles an hour and yeah, exactly. get that physiological level uh, arousal way up there and yeah, then yeah. put her in a romantic context and she'll think, wow, I'm so aroused. It must be due to this guy. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. But I want to say it's not just one-sided. It's yeah. the guys who are misinterpreting this right, as well. Right, so right. so yeah, it works course. both ways. I, I, it's I, not. I, I, must, I must be in love with her. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, It's funny because I have this memory popping into my head of, of um, being at the ocean and, and going into the ocean with this girl and, and uh and I was like, we should we should go back in. The waves are starting to get, and she wanted to stay out a little longer. And I really should have just been like, no, we got to go in. <laughs> and I didn't. And um, and trying to get back in, yeah. like she almost drowned. Oh. And uh, and I felt so awful about it because yeah. I took her there yeah. and everything. And um, but we had lots and lots of sex <laughs> after I almost got her killed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably a little over the optimal yeah, 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 yeah. We, we don't recommend that. You always have to just take it a little too far there. Yeah, that's fantastic. So um, in, in the last chapter of your book, um, uh, here, here's something that I'm not sure that we've ever talked about on the podcast is um, you, you talk about um, sexual medicine mm-hmm. um, yeah. and sexual healing. Can you yeah. explain that? Yeah. Right. And this is, this goes back to Marvin Gaye. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of uh, women said they had sex for reasons that we don't really think of as being sexual, like to get rid of a headache, to get rid of pain, to lose weight, to keep warm, to be able to sleep. Uh, all the, for all these health kind of benefit fringe benefits, and um, there you know there is a, some science supporting this. Certainly during high levels of arousal, and especially during orgasm, your brain releases opiates, and and that is the body's natural painkiller. So you're getting a real dose of you know, opiates, and uh, which feel good, which help some people to sleep, help them to relax, get rid of anxiety. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so there are a lot of, uh, medicinal health benefits to it is. having well, sex. I'll, I'll, I'll be, I have to talk about my favorite though. We talk about it in the book and this is, uh, Cindy wrote this section, but, uh, but that yes, sex and orgasm can actually get rid of a headache. And so it's some irony. Sometimes women use sex as an excuse, a headache to, as an excuse to get out of sex. And but now we know guys can say actually there's scientific evidence <laughs> that this will help with that headache. Depends on the type of headache. Yeah, uh, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't always work, but right. But, 
I mean, it is it is funny. I I think most um, men have uh, certainly most men, and I'm sure a lot of women have experienced this, where you can be exhausted and have had a hard day, or you know, even be injured or you know, in, in terrible shape or or whatever, and then like, and then you wave. get into the bedroom, and all of a sudden it's just like you are in your prime, you're <laughs> you're in your peak, and all, all of a sudden you have all sorts of energy yeah, and stamina yeah, yeah. that just came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to. I, I real one of the things that I was really interested about your take on. Uh, so we're just going to skip back to what we we're talking about. I I, I was curious. Um, it seems like, and and as someone who doesn't believe in telepathy or anything like that, sometimes I'm like, do women have just powers that I simply <laughs> do not understand? Because it, it j- just this, and and I guess it it'd probably even be a little cliche to bring up because uh, how often this seems to happen. But but uh, the idea of um, I I feel like especially if you're a guy, if you're in a relationship. Um, women women seem far more interested in you than than when you're when you're single or or when you're um i i feel like when you're when you're maybe it's just that when you're not going after it uh you have more oh, confidence oh, oh, oh you mean you have yeah. more mate appeal when you're already in a relationship right, to other right. women oh yeah well sure because you've already been vetted out especially right. if your current girlfriend or partner is highly attractive yeah so then I think, I think it's yeah both things though i think it's so yeah exactly she, you're you're pre-screened and so if she's of high mate value then that's you get the mate copying phenomenon but i think your point is also good so you're in a relationship it means you're not you're not hungry and desperately panting after other women and women who find guys who are desperately panting after them to be low in mate value so right. uh so that signals of non-desperation maybe can help. yeah then yeah, there's yeah. Like, there's this even and and this is this is a very small sample size and very <laughs> anecdotal and everything else, but it is the strangest thing. I'm telling you, there there were times when I would I would be in a very long term, you know, committed relationship, and and um, and we're having major issues with our relationship, and and we have some huge blowout fight like right before i have to go and perform or whatever and oh, and yeah. um and it, you know like well i think this is it i think this is when we're breaking up or whatever and and i consciously as far as i know i'm getting on stage and doing the same act the same material in the same way as i did the night before but it's always like when when my relationships at its weakest point because it's 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 not it's not all that common that women just like come up and approach me afterward or at least maybe I'm not receptive to it or I don't realize that it's oh, happening. So, or so something. wait, you get more attention uh, after a breakup and you're on stage. Uh, so you're when I'm like right oh. on the edge of a breakup, all of a oh, sudden, like really? the most that, attractive huh. woman in the room will come up and say oh. like the most forward thing wow. that I've ever. This could vary. You well, know, may- maybe you're emitting some wild pheromones, but I think it's just called luck. Yeah, <laughs> uh, probably. Or maybe, maybe I'm more receptive. Yeah, or or mate switching. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm in mate switching mode, ladies. 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Or maybe what it is when you're in a relationship and you're really happy, you're just not as open to those cues. Right. And so you're kind of tuning them out. You're focusing on making everybody laugh. And then when you're about to be in single mode again, you're kind of scanning for other cues. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, as someone who has, um, who has, um, embarrassingly enough done um a, a little bit of mate switching um in in their life which i i don't like to admit to but i'm not a perfect person uh could we talk a little bit about some of the uh, maybe what what so, some of the women in the and again you don't mm-hmm. have to say right. specific examples yeah. or anything like that but um just maybe talk about uh, what this idea of mate switching is, or, or, I mean, I think most people are familiar with the idea of trading up a little bit, but maybe talk about some of what's happening. Well, well I'll say a few words. First of all, it, it doesn't mean you're a bad human being <laughs> if you've ever done mate switching. Almost everybody has. So, yeah. so but can you define that? Because you're not talking about, okay, this is my wife and that's your wife. Let's trade. No, no. I'm oh, talking, that's, that, 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 when that's you say mate swapping. Mate swapping is not yeah. the same I'm as like, mate wow. switching. I haven't been to any swinger parties just yet. Yeah. Oh, I've been yeah. invited to a couple yeah. oddly enough, but I'm yeah. in a strange That's business. a different, okay. different, so different yeah, definition. That's not what I'm but, okay. but so, so 85, one study found 85% of everybody has experienced at least one romantic breakup. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that, you know, the, it's a tiny minority of people who, when they're 18, find the one and only, live monogamously till death do them part. So most people have multiple mates over the course of their life. I mean, and, even even people that don't ever act on anything doesn't mean that they never, you know, thought about it. Oh, well, of course, yeah. President Jimmy Carter uh, said, as far as we know, he never he never was unfaithful, but he said in a Playboy interview, I, I have had lust in my heart many times. Right. And so he was a, he's a, he was, he was, he was a deeply religious guy, so didn't act on it. But, but yes, having lust in your heart is not an uncommon thing. But but mate switching is actually a very complicated thing, and it gets to the issue. Cindy uh, uh, Mess and I we we have a, we have a section in our book on on mate switching, and there are several different variants of it. And one is that women, uh, if they're in a relationship, sometimes start an affair uh, it, 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 as a way of getting out of a relationship. Is is one thing. So actually, it it, it sometimes boosts a woman's self esteem causes her to think that she has some desirability and that she can make a successful mate switch. Sometimes it is with the guy she's having an affair with. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, studies of infidelity find that women who have affairs, about 70% fall in love with their affair partner. For men, it's only about 30%. Mm-hmm. So men much less likely. Uh, and, so, uh, and, and so one is transitioning out of a relationship back into the mating market and feeling that there are pot- that you're sufficiently desirable that there are other potential mates out for there. So this is you're sitting at work and in, in, uh, at a job that you're not terribly satisfied at, and you're sending out applications for for uh, for <laughs> other other jobs right, to make right. a business world exactly, analogy. Exactly testing the waters. Yeah, right. uh, yeah, and 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 so, uh, but but people get use mate switching. They use sex for mate switching um, for to get out of a bad relationship, to get into a new one, to trade up to get into the mating market, or sometimes simply to as a backup. So, and, and this gets back to a, a key evolutionary reason, and that is that one's mate, uh, nothing comes with a guarantee. Mm-hmm. Ancestrally, the odds that something bad would happen to your mate or the relationship were very high. 
Uh, especially when it's a man. <laughs> especially when it's a man. So he gets killed in a club fight, right. uh, a, a war, a hunting accident, a disease fells him, uh, one thing or another. And so women who cultivated a backup potential mate would have been in a much better position than women who were basically left mateless and then had to start from square one. Hmm. That's, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, you know, kind of the reverse of that, but but along the same lines, I was curious what your thoughts were. I remember, um, I remember reading um, Steven Pinker's How the Mind Works, and he was kind of talking about um, the evolution of love as, as um, this this idea of this kind of as, as a contract, like an emotional contract before we had, um, uh, you, you know, uh, courts and everything else where, where these, we made marriage legal and everything else. Um, this, this idea that, you know, if we were just robots that didn't feel anything, we might always be looking to be mm. trading up. If you're mm-hmm. with a seven right now, why, mm-hmm. why not always keep your right. options right. open for that eight? And why not the second you see one, why not switch? And, and maybe, but your partner may do the same thing and there's right. a cost involved right. there. So maybe part of the reason why we right. have this love thing is, is it forms this. Right, um, right, right. It's a, commi- <laughs> it's a commitment device. So it basically says, you know, if there is that depth of emotional feeling that, no, I'm not, you're going to get, you get sick, I'm not going to leave you, you know, temporarily. So, so yeah, it's, it's basically Robert Frank, an economist's notion of love as a commitment device. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, a little different, but the whole notion of monogamy versus non-monogamy and who chooses to be monogamous. And really, even how do we define monogamy? You know, I mean, we we generally look at the behavior. So if someone is having sex with only one person, we tend to call them monogamous and someone who's having sex with more than one person, non-monogamous. But, but really, what if the person is only having sex with one person, but the only reason they're having sex with one person is because they're afraid they're going to get caught. They really want to have sex with someone else. Or they, for religious reasons, they think that they will be punished in the afterlife for Mm -hmm. having... Is that monogamy? I mean, this whole notion of if you have lust in your heart and you really want to have sex with someone else, but but you don't because of some external uh, control mechanism, is that still monogamy? Yeah. You know? So, well, you know she has a gun, so... You know. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think that's most people. I mean, most people... I mean, I think it's unrealistic to think that once you get into a relationship that your attraction to all other human beings is going to drop to zero. Yeah. No, but not attraction, but but the next stage, w- taking it beyond Take, attraction yeah. and wanting to have sex with them. And I think no. that somewhere in there comes this notion of bonding and emotional attachment. And is it more than just feeling, you know, connected psychologically with someone or is there something hormonal in involved i mean is that the a lot of people talk about oxytocin the bonding hormone we we hear a lot about it as the kind of maternal bonding um, hormone because pregnant women and women who give birth and women who are breastfeeding have lots of oxytocin it's meant as as a neurochemical to bond the woman to her children but we also know that oxytocin is released um, you know, during sex. And so it can serve as a way to connect you to the person. And maybe there are, this This was a question we asked in my lab a number of years ago, maybe there are individual differences in the degree to which sex leads to oxytocin 
release in some people, you know, so. Mm. Right. And we, we don't, uh, in our book, we, we have uh, small packets of oxytocin that we sell along <laughs> with the book. No, no, just kidding. Uh, marketing idea that probably, probably is not a good one. <laughs> a nasal spray. Uh, some open the issues, perhaps. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, may, maybe people will just fall in love with your book, though. So, so I met uh, David. You were out of the room when Cindy and I discussed this. But uh, just before we wrap up here, um, I I mentioned that I have uh, my my guests or guests each week uh, mention a nonprofit uh, of of their choice that they would like to mention and yeah well i'll give a shout out to austin pets alive uh they have single-handedly turned austin from a very high kill animal rate of cat of cats and dogs to a no kill this is a truly no kill city they work amazingly hard they have so many volunteers uh throughout austin who do everything from foster animals to raise money to you know clean out the litter boxes it's yeah, it, it's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And as as someone who lived in Austin for a couple of years, it, it's cool because they kind of make communities better too. Because you go out and you're you're going to brunch or whatever, and you're walking down the street, and they have like one of their little yeah. campers or whatever yeah, set yeah, up, and yeah, you can yeah. go and play with some puppies for a while. Yeah, and... yeah, exactly. And you can volunteer. You can if you don't want to, or if you're not in a position to commit to um, having a dog, you can go and walk dogs for them, and yeah. you know it's. It's a great organization. That's fantastic. People can go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and there will be a link provided there so you can find out more. So um, so, so lastly, and, and you're, you're certainly welcome to um, say any other closing words that, that or anything else that you wanted to discuss, but I was curious. Um, so, so how has writing this book and, and, you know, just in general studying this stuff, ha- has it made me more mindful in your relationships? And, and do you think it's, do you think it's changed like the, the sex talk that you've had with your children? Um, it, you well, know, cause it, I, I, I didn't, I didn't get much of a sex talk from my, from no, my no, children. No, neither did so. I. Uh, well, I don't have children, so I okay. uh, sex talk with my dog, and she's been <laughs> infinitely uh, more well <laughs> well behaved. <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't know. You know, I, I I've been doing sex research for a long time, so it's not like I learned a huge number of scientific facts that I didn't know. But certainly, I guess for me, what was so, most enlightening was hearing women tell their stories about having sex for all these different reasons, and sometimes those very same reasons could lead to very positive outcomes for some women and very negative outcomes for some women. Like for just a quick example, the women who had sex out of loneliness. Some women said, you know, I felt better. I could face the day the next day. I felt more confident. I went out. I got stuff done. Other women said it just made me feel twice as lonely. So it really is so individual. And it does make you think... I think, and I hope that women who read the book think more about why they have sex, almost be better consumers of sex and have sex for the reasons that are right for them, not, you know, for anyone else, but that are going to lead to positive outcomes uh, for them. Right. I think we all have these conscious goals <laughs> yeah, of what yeah, we yeah. want in life. And, yeah. it, and it helps if you want to bring those to fruition to know kind of the underlying mechanisms that can help and hurt. Yeah. The, that yeah. Goal. Yeah. Or to kind of reflect on, oh, yeah, I had sex for that reason, too. Didn't turn out so well. Don't think I'll do that again. 
So, yeah, and I think what I would say is uh, that I, I, I have learned a lot collaborating with, with uh, Dr. Meston on this. And part of it is it gets back to a point you were mentioning earlier, which I think is really interesting. So from a male perspective, from my perspective, I feel like I understand male psychology, including male sexual psychology. I feel like I understand it well. I think guys, for me, guys are transparent. But women are seem more complicated, more baffling, more mysterious. Almost like you know, like the, those movies where the there's a someone's robbing a bank, and they there are these uh, the the bank protectors. They have the, all these infrared beams, and the bank robber has to put on special goggles yeah, to yeah. see the beams and to move, move around. <laughs> I think that's what it is with guys. It, women have all these beams, and they see all this stuff that we don't know. see. But but that's one of the the benefits of collaborating on, yeah. on, on this book is now I feel like I have at least some sense. I'm seeing some yeah. of the yeah, yeah. that weren't there before. I know it was in, in, even a non-rating mating um, example over the holidays. We were playing charades, and my my sister was there, and with a, another complete stranger who was also a female. And to watch them, like all of us guys are struggling through it, and to watch them, be, like my sister would move her hand a half an inch, and the other girl would be like cow tipping. Yeah, like what? <laughs> What just happened? Yeah. <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, so that's interesting. So, so everyone, everyone, uh, women, you you can learn more about yourselves and guys. Uh, you know, you need all the help you can get. Uh, I know, I certainly do. Um, get, get the book "Why Women Have Sex," and it, it's incredibly enlightening for uh, for men and women uh, alike. And uh, and thank you, David and Cindy, for yeah. joining me. This is a lot of fun. It yeah, is great thanks fun. for talking. Thank to you. It's right. great talking. And thank you, listeners, for being curious. I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I imagine that you did. If you're a fan of this program, I think the last few episodes, especially, have been fantastic. I think we've been on a bit of a hot streak. Uh, you know, some some episodes are just going to be better than others sometimes, and, and sometimes there's real strong ones, and I've, I've had, admittedly, a couple out there that I've just, it, it didn't go the way that I had planned, and, and sometimes I'm in a bad mood, or I don't study enough, or I'm not firing, um, and, uh, you know, or, or there's just not as much chemistry between me and my guest and i think lately man i i have been so happy with all these uh episodes in texas so i hope you guys have been enjoying them as much as i've enjoyed making them next week is no different uh we're we're going to be discussing one of my favorite topics in the whole wide world self-deception um this is something that i mean we we talk about Stuff like this on the podcast, we, we touch on this stuff, uh, usually in relation to other topics, um, and it's not really the focal point of, of a given episode. It will just kind of, it will just kind of touch on it a little bit. So anyway, next week, we're getting full on into it. I wish I had more more guests like this on, and we definitely will in the future. Uh, we're going to be talking with Jennifer Beer at the University of Texas, Austin, who is a neuroscientist. So we're going to be talking about the neurological 
underpinnings of self-deception. One of my absolute favorite topics, and this is uh, it, the our conversation was fantastic. So um, please make sure and tune in next week. And again, if you have an iPhone and you've been having any, any subscription problems, please write us at the herewearepodcast.com website. You guys are awesome. Thanks for listening and your time and being wonderful. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior. Happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao Bella, it's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs>